This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are difficult to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. My guest today is Neil McKenty. He's a broadcaster and author from Canada who's a regular visitor to Maine. He's the author of a book called The Inside Story, which is his memoir, in particular chronicles his struggle with depression. So welcome, Neil. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted that you're here. I want to start our show about depression by asking you, what is it about depression that makes it so hard to talk about or to tell people about? Well, I think one of the things that makes it most hard is that uh, depression indicates that the persona that you've built or the, um, the front that you've spent so long constructing is beginning to crack and disintegrate. And uh, you really can't afford to let people see this going on. So the only thing you can do is withdraw and mm. pull down the blinds and pull the covers over your head and, um, you know, stay away from, from people. So when you say you can't afford to have people see it, Tell me more. How come? Why not? Well, I think uh, one might say that um, we're kind of split uh, one w in one way. That uh, we, we um, don't want people to see us the way we see ourselves. That we're, um, th that we're not uh, happy with ourselves. We don't like ourselves. Um, we don't, um, uh, well, let, let's just leave it at that. And uh, we, can't, we can't afford to let people see us the way we feel about ourselves. So we want people to see us differently. And that's why we spend uh, so many often laborious years constructing a front, mm -hmm. uh, usually a front uh, with the smooth surface of success. And, and, you know, that you, not only are you not in trouble internally, which you realize you are, but, but you've got everything covered. You're, 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 you're a success. I see. So you're saying that depression is when the split between that front, that sort of false persona of mm -hmm. success, mm -hmm. and the inner reality, which is a, a place of feeling really like something's not right about yourself. That split begins to to crumble or to to crack to the point it can't be sustained anymore. That's right. Uh huh. And so then the very thing that you never wanted people to know about you to begin with starts to show itself. That's right. And uh, and you, so far as uh, you are aware, from your background, your home, your parents, your religion, you you can't afford to uh, let people see you the way you really are. Uh huh. Because once when you did, it went badly. Or before your experience is that when people saw your humanness, your flawedness, they punished you for it or couldn't accept it. I don't know that they punished me for it. Uh, I was so invested in uh, developing this uh, front of success mm -hmm. that I don't think it until the depression started to eat away at it. I don't think that I was. Um, ever challenged. What do you mean challenged? Well, I mean, nobody came up and said to me, you know, McKenty, you're a fraud. You're a phony. 
I see. So nobody saw through it. Nobody saw through it. Uh-huh. It worked pretty well, as a matter of fact, for a long time. Yes, and yet I imagine, this is coming from my training in psychiatry, that in some way you must have learned about the necessity of that front, that it was really you were really only okay if you were so successful. It wasn't okay to be flawed somehow. No, it wasn't okay. It was not okay to be vulnerable, and therefore you have to try to be invulnerable. Yeah. And that, I'll tell you, is a very lonely road. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, I, I paid a, a price for that long before the Depression through insomnia. Hmm. And uh, the energy that it takes to build that kind of a front 24-7 is a great deal of effort and energy. And um, in order to compensate for that, well, not compensate is not the right word, I um, I began chronic insomnia, lasted for years and years. I still suffered to, uh, from it to some extent, although it's uh, it's a good deal more manageable. And then, in order to get some relief from this um, this construct, which was phony, mm-hmm. um, I began to drink, mm-hmm. and uh, I got into chronic and. Uh, problem drinking yeah but but I got some relief from the uh, when I was drinking I mean there were periods when I I got away from the front and I was spontaneous and etc I see so for brief periods under the influence of alcohol yep. you felt like you were able to be more real yes aha uh-huh. so no wonder alcohol came to be very powerful yes for you. it did yeah so I want to come back to something you said before about the loneliness and how being so invulnerable, so identified with your persona, right. made you feel so lonely. Can you tell me more about that? Well, um, I think alcoholics have, um, recovering alcoholics have, have a phrase that they use in their talks that they felt less than, mm. less than other people. Now, what I was aware of from the beginning, I mean, it started very early, I was different. And I was different in the sense that I was less than, Mm -hmm. that other people were more popular, other people had more uh, uh, intelligent parents, other people were more successful, and and I was uh, the odd ball out. And uh, out there, where you're you're not in any kind of solidarity, you're not really developing a, a lot of friends. Then the stand you take is, well, if I'm different than those people, I'll be better, mm-hmm. and I'll show them, I'll be better than they are, and then you start the whole business of. Uh, education and degrees and uh, people saying, what a fine young man this is. I see. And you're ready to spit. I see. So in a way, what you're saying is that what fueled your your achievement, maybe even your overachievement, was actually a deeper fear that you were less than. That's right. Uh-huh. I, I can, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, when you look back on it, do you feel like that wasn't true, that that was just a belief you had about yourself? That what exactly wasn't true? That you were so different from other people. No, I, I think uh, that I was not that different. I think there were all kinds of lonely people walking around. Um, 
many of them with uh, invested in their fronts. Yes. Now, there were other people, people that I admired enormously then and look back and admire now, who had a spontaneity, a gregariousness, mm -hmm. and a, a, a sort of, uh, to use a lot of jargon, a real connection with their inner child. Mm -hmm. uh, there were th these people, and they were naturals. Yes, and that you found that appealing. Uh, very appealing, very appealing. Yes, and it sounds like you were very aware of not being that. That's yourself. right. Yes. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and we're at Safe Space talking to Neil McKenty on the subject of depression. So, Neil, I want to ask you more about what, what it's like to be depressed. When you're depressed, tell me about that experience. Well, I think one of the words that may describe it best is paralysis. You are, you are simply paralyzed. And uh, I, I remember one time I had a... a I had an operation in the hospital for some kind of a throat infection, and unknown to the doctors, they gave me an anesthetic, you know, curare, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that Indians use on it the tips of It paralyzes you. Well, it paralyzes you. Yes. And it did paralyze me. And I could hear these people talking, well, he's a fine young man, it's too bad that, that he's in this big trouble, and I couldn't do anything about it. I was listening to sort of my obituary, oh. and now they did a they did a tracheotomy, and everything was fine. But there's something of the same experience in depression. You are paralyzed, you in the sense that, uh, for example, you you do not want to get out of bed in the morning. You, you have nothing to get out of the bed in the morning for. Mm. You have no real interest in people, including your wife. Mm. And I was uh, had been happily married and was deeply in love with Catherine. Uh, but the, there's nothing that engages your attention. Mm. And you're, you're, it's, it's, uh, I think it's been best described um, by William Styron in his wonderful book, on depression, darkness visible, uh, you're in a black hole and you're, you're immobile. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a very frightening space. I can imagine. In your book, The Inside Story, you, you characterize it as to do with darkness mm -hmm. and also ho hopelessness. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that leads me to the, to the subject of suicide, which is on the minds of so many people who suffer from depression. And I wonder if you could tell us your story of how you thought about suicide, how close you came, and, and ultimately what, what saved you from it. Well, I thought about it a lot. Um, uh, I thought that uh, my life had been useless and uh, that there was absolutely nothing to look forward to. And, and I was in this uh, black hole, pretty much immobile, um, and I, th I thought about various ways, using pills, using a gun, uh, jumping in front of a, a, a metro train in Montreal. We had a metro station fairly close to us. And w one day, uh, Catherine was away doing some work somewhere. Um, I actually uh, left a note for her. Um, I think I've forgotten now exactly what it said that I think r roughly that she would be better off without me. Mm. And, uh, and uh, that was a strong feeling, that uh, she would be better off. You really off. believed yes, that at I the did. time. Mm -hmm. 
than in the state I was in. And so I, I, I walked uh, to a bar. Now, I didn't uh, drink at the bar, but I, and then I walked to the metro station. And uh, there's a paradox here a bit. It was a cold, blustery, snowy March day. And the, the walk, in a sense, uh, I think helped me immeasurably. The, the very physical activity in the cold air was in some paradoxical sense bracing. Mm. And uh, I went down to the railroad to the metro station. I sat there and stood there for a while, but I did not jump and I went home. Mm. And I can't emphasize too much, uh, Anne, that um, any kind of physical exercise, which of course a depressed person feels uh, useless about, any kind of physical exercise will give you a leg up. Yes. And there's a little uh, story here. I was still doing radio part-time, and during the period of my worst depression, I had to go to the station every afternoon to get it, to involve myself in a discussion program about politics, particularly. And I hated that going, I, 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 but I was committed to it, so I went. And I think that was one of my salvations. Mm. The fact that I got out from under the covers, Catherine encouraged me, she encouraged me to walk if I could, and did that every day was of an immense benefit. So you had somewhere to be mm -hmm. and people who were expecting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine just the structure of that. And some exercise was involved. Yes. You had to do some walking. You had to get dressed. Yes. Um, that was a godsend. Yeah, so I want to I come to what helped you in a minute. But before we get to what helped, I want to just make sure we've, we've really talked about what it was like. Um, in the beginning today, you talked about when the persona is starting to crack and the only thing to do is just withdraw and hide under the covers. Do you have any sense that that withdrawal is actually somehow uh, helpful or, or uh, part of something you have to go through to come out different on the other side? Or is that a complete sentimentalization of something that's just awful? You're asking me whether everybody who's depressed has to go through these stages? No, I'm really asking just for you, with your experience. I mean, it sounds to me that where you emerged on the other side, which was being far more comfortable living out of your real self and not with this persona, that in the, in the long run, thank goodness that happened. The process itself was, was horrible. Um, All right. The... the uh you know, I think I quote in, in my memoir, The Inside Story, uh, the Chinese uh, word for crisis, uh, yes. meaning danger or opportunity. Yes. A and I, I think for me, in the end, the depression was a growth experience. Mm -hmm. Now, does everybody have to go through a depression? I don't think so at all. No. 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 Well, there seem to be some people, as you've said at the beginning, who don't seem to have such a sense of false self no. or persona. No. Yeah. No, they don't. Yeah. So this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. We're at Safe Space, and we're t I'm talking to Neil McKenty about depression. So I would like to shift now to hearing about what were the things that ultimately helped you. I know from your book that you were depressed for about two years, 
including a hospitalization, medications. Shock treatments. Yeah. So tell us about what finally made the difference. Well, of course, those uh, the, the medical interventions, uh, uh, as I look back, uh, were very helpful. I mean, I'm not sure I would have survived without them. But the person that made the difference in the end was not a medical person. Um, I think it was shortly after um, that trip to the Metro to contemplate suicide that I told you about earlier. I think, um, Anne, that uh, I I got in touch with a friend of mine. I had supper with him. I told him, and I I did, uh, even to tell him, was a, com- a completely step forward. Yes. Because I, I, I accepted my vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I, 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 as I said to Catherine one time, as we were waking up in the morning, I said, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I, I, well, of course, my, my front was, I always knew what to do. Right. And by, and by the way, if you know all the answers and if you always know what to do, you're not going to have many friends. Mm-hmm. Not going to have many friends. Anyway, I talked to this guy. I said, I don't know what to do. I need help. I'm in a lot of trouble. And he said, I know the guy that I think can help you. And we got into his car, and we drove a few blocks, and we walked up uh, two flights of stairs to this guy's apartment. And it was uh, a friend that I had met before, briefly. His name was Jim. And I told Jim in the kitchen table what I had told my friend at over supper. And, and he started talking about uh, treatment centers. And I banged my fist on the table, and I said, I've got no time to, do, to worry about treatment centers. I need help right now. Mm. And Jim said... Well, what Jim did, well, he banged his fist on the table, and he said, all right, here's what you're going to do. And he outlined a program just like that. I was to come to his place every night at 7 o'clock and to, and to walk there, not ride. So I, he I, knew about physical exercise, he, too. He knew about that. Uh, I was to uh, write out a program the night before of all my activities the next day. I was to do a certain amount of reading, particularly about addiction, I was to listen to tapes with him. Well, we, we did this for about uh, two or three months. And every was, night? Every night. Well, he, he said I, uh, the, it was six nights a week. He said I'd take one night off. And uh, Did you Jim, pay him for this? Sorry, Anne? Did you pay him for this? No, he wouldn't take a nickel. Wow, so I, he gave I, of himself yes, he Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. And uh, mm. he, he is a giver. Mm. He, He's a wonderful man with great uh, perspicacity. <laughs> uh, he knows people. Uh, mm. he, he knows addictive personalities, and he's wonderfully supportive. Mm. And, so you and felt he was understood. the cat. He, he was the catalyst. Sorry. Yeah, you felt understood by. I him. felt understood. I felt he knew what he was doing. Yes. So you could kind of relax yep. and trust him. Yep. Uh huh. In the book, you write about uh, three things that really helped you the exercise, the medical treatment, and this relationship with Mm -hmm. him, which led to a kind of spiritual awakening, if that's the right word for it. I wondered if you might tell us how important that was for you and how that affected the Depression. Well, I'm not sure now what I wrote about the spiritual awakening, (laughs) but but in any event, 
I, I just started to feel more authentic. Uh -huh. I, I started to feel, uh, to me, spirituality, the essence of spirituality is relationships. Uh, the relationship you have with yourself, the relationship you have with other people, and the relationship you had with God. I should say about uh, organized religion here that I was brought up an Irish Catholic in a rigid home and, and in a rigid parish and um, religion, Irish Catholicism religion as it was presented to me was not a nourishing, uh, not a nourishing, what would we say? Uh, well, it, it did not nourish me. Yes. I should say, too, that I, I know you were a Jesuit priest for mm -hmm. many years. I was. Left the priesthood. And you said in your book at one time that you felt that it was impossible to have spiritual growth without emotional growth. And I wonder if that's part of what you're saying, that emotionally it was not nourishing for you, and therefore you are, um, spiritually you stayed stuck at a certain place. Stunted. Yes. Yeah. I think that's true. I, I think, uh, and what Jim did to some considerable degree uh, was open the sluiceways to emotional growth mm. because if you're exactly as you as you've said Anne, if you're trying to uh, grow spiritually and you're stunted emotionally you're only in more conflict mm -hmm. yes the two foster each yeah. other and and i started to feel that that uh, i would i I was more real, and boy, what a liberating experience mm -hmm. that was. I was more real, and therefore I was more comfortable all around, all around. So give me an example of that. What does that mean for you? When you said I was more real, how did you feel that? Well, what I felt was that I no longer needed to expend all this energy on a false front. Uh -huh. That that I was more spontaneous. I was more like that little kid. Uh -huh. More playful. More playful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was not very playful, and I didn't, uh, I didn't smile that much. I'm not sure I smile that much now, but I, but I, I, I started to. Uh, be, I think the word that appeals to me is spontaneous. Yes. You became one of those people you so admired. From yes, before. I did to some extent. Yes. You write about the transition from feeling depressed and essentially kind of self-loathing to to starting to like yourself yeah and uh, i was that's a that's a big jump it's a huge jump and i really want to ask you about it because so many people don't like themselves so many people feel great pain about who they who they are and i wondered what helped you begin to like yourself well i think the the it's a process it's, it's it's not there's no silver bullet it's a process and it can be quite a long process and i think the key person here was jim yes because if jim started to like me and if jim uh, felt confidence in me then there there must be something right with me yes you know i i i hear the word worthless so much in my work yeah. people feeling worthless and it strikes me that here was this man who was willing for free yep. to spend six nights a week with you. Yep. He clearly saw in you something of great worth yes, that he, he was did. willing to invest in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that really started to help you believe that about yourself. Yes, and I see him once or twice a week. I have lunch with him. 
And if I get on my high horse, he certainly pulls me down fast. Well, now that's interesting. So he likes you, but he pulls you down for oh, being on yes. your high he, horse. He, he thinks I'm still rather pompous, <laughs> and he still thinks that I'm basically kind of lazy. And, uh, he, and he no, tells you to your face. He has no trouble. He has no trouble <laughs> reminding me of this. Uh-huh. But it's not in any. Uh, it, it's 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 playful. Yes, it's and from someone who you really trust yes, cares right. about you. Yeah. Yes. So um, I want to ask you now about uh, your decision to go public. I know that you are a public figure in Montreal, having been on the radio there for many years and on television. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a book where you essentially became very real. And I wanted to know, what were your fears in really letting people know about this? There were, there were some fears, but they weren't terribly serious. I... Uh, when I was writing this book, I have a feeling Catherine, my wife, was in the hospital part of the time for something, perhaps a hip operation, and I used to go to the hospital and read her a chapter that I had written during the day. And I, there were some fears. I was concerned uh, we were about her, how would she feel, because she's in the book, too. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't give them a great deal of credence. I said, this... Uh, I, I was. I got involved in the project. The book was coming fairly well, and uh, I guess maybe I even said to myself, "Well, that uh, this was also part of my journey. That mm. book. This was also part of the process. And if I could let all this stuff hang out in the book, which I did. Yes. And of course, if I if I hadn't let it all hung out." Then the book would have been phony. Right, exactly. No. So it was, a, it was part of the ongoing process I of being so. more and more real. Yeah, I think so. Yes. And, and, and the fact is, of course, nobody came up to me and said, gee, what a fraud you are. I never thought you would like that. You had a drinking problem. You had the, they came up to me and said, my God, thank you. Mm. What were they thanking you for? They were thanking me for articulating, I think, many of their own fears. Yes. I I think a lot of people, Anne, and, and you must know this yourself, uh, they have this split about they don't want people to see the way they feel about themselves. They want to be perceived differently. Yes. And that split, is, I think, is, is endemic. Yes, and, and exhausting and loneliness-inducing oh. and miserable. Miserable. Yes. Are you ever afraid that the depression will return? Uh, not really. Uh, c- could it return? Well, if it did, I, I have more tools now to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, it could return, and I'm a bit on guard. Mm-hmm. I, I don't fool around. Do you take medication for yes, it Yes, I do, yeah. Uh-huh. Do you have confidence that that helps? I'm not sure it, it helps. I, I take Effexor mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis, um, a, a mild dosage, I think. Whether it helps or not, my uh, my psychiatrist has prescribed it, and I, fo- I follow along. I see. Okay. So we have to close in a minute, Neil. I want to ask you, are there any suggestions you have of resources for people who struggle with depression that you might want to name any particular books or places to turn? Well, of course, I mentioned William Styron mm. and, uh, and uh, Darkness Visible. Um, I think in most communities, larger communities, there are uh, depression 
associations that you can call up. Yes. I don't have names of any treatment centers, yes. etc. So maybe what I might say in closing is that there are depression support groups locally in communities throughout Maine. And here in Portland, there is one that meets uh, through Maine Medical Association that can be found out through their uh, switchboard. I also wanted to let people know about the phone number 774-HELP. That's 774-H-E-L-P which is a 24-hour crisis hotline that can end up referring you to treatment. So we are going to close, Neil. I want to thank you so much. It's, it's been, been a pleasure such an and honor. And it's an honor for me, too. On a personal note, I want to say that I grew up hearing Neil McKenty on the radio, and it is really a treasure for me to have you on my show today, Neil. Thanks, Anne. It means a great deal to me. So this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is the end of Safe Space. If you have a request for me for a new topic or a subject that you'd like me to address, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E-W-M-P-G at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Sheila Cassidy talking about the subject of torture. Coming up next is Caribbean Flava with Danny.